You're listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast by Dr. Robert Shaw. For a complete archive of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles. I've been preaching through the book of First Peter this summer, and some of our folks thought, well, hey, he finished First Peter last week. I guess we're done for the summer. Guess what? Peter wrote another letter, aptly entitled Second Peter. Not exactly sure how much time has elapsed between First and Second Peter, but we are pretty sure of this. The epistle of this letter of Second Peter was written shortly before Peter's death. He's in a, probably in all likelihood, is in a prison by now in Rome and writes this letter to a group of churches that he lists back in First Peter. And they basically encompass the area of that time period, of that region. And so this is one of those kind of letters that it would go to one church and then it would go to the next church and it was probably carried by somebody from church to church. In fact, probably Silas carried the letter. Just four verses this morning, but I'm telling you, there's some meat here. You're going to need a toothpick after this morning. There's some meat. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Have you ever struggled living the Christian life? Don't raise your hand. That probably would apply to anybody in here who claims the name of Jesus. Have you ever been to a retreat? That would apply to a lot of these folks down here. And you leave the retreat thinking, okay, had this great experience with God. I'm going to live for God now. And then you get back home, and it seems like about two weeks after you get back home, the retreat has become too much of a distant memory. And you're back into the rut that you were in before the retreat. And I kind of experienced that as a teenager growing up. You know, my life looked a little bit too much like a spiritual roller coaster. And yes, there are going to be ups and downs. In fact, sometimes during the down times is when God teaches you a lot. But it shouldn't look like just, you know, the roller coaster. I remember coming off of one retreat in particular, and I'm sitting in my car in my friend's driveway. His name is Tim. And I remember looking at Tim and saying, Tim, I am so tired of coming off retreats and making all these promises to God, and things are going to be different, and there's times you leave retreats thinking, I'll never sin again. And then you get home, and what happens? You sin again. And I remember looking at Tim and saying, Tim, what are we going to do for, to be different this time? How is it going to be different? I don't want this great experience I just had with God to just last two weeks. Tim said, let's pray hard. And so we squinted our eyes real tight, as if that was going to impress God somehow. You've seen the bumper stickers that say pray hard. I don't have any real problem with that, but I just got to tell you, the bottom line is pray. (laughs) Not about how tight your eyes are clenched or how deeply you grunt. It's not about you anyway. It's about God. That's what Peter is writing about here. 
In fact, I've had teenagers almost tell me, you know what, if we could just stay at the chapel, we could live for God. You know, you don't have televisions in your room. We've kind of taken away some of the distractions that you normally have, and you're kind of thinking, you know what, man, this is just, this is great. Let me tell you, I live here. And you're still going to struggle. You know what? God doesn't want you to stay here. We don't either. I'm just kidding about that part. They actually have a thing here at the beach called Reclaiming the Beach. And uh, they asked me the first few years to pray for Reclaiming the Beach. And I asked them, what, are we, what is that all about? We do it in September right after Labor Day. And we walk out to the beach and we thank God that the tourists have come. And then we thank God that they have gone. And some of you think, though, you know what, if I could just live here, I could really live for God. Well, guess what? You wouldn't be any different here than it is back home. And guess what? God doesn't want you to stay here. He wants you to go back home and take what God's done in your midst and live it for him back there. And so you ask the question, well, is that possible? Because, Robert, you've already said two weeks after retreat's over. No, it doesn't have to be that way. It's kind of the same mentality that some people have about, you know what, I could lose weight if I could just go off to one of those fat farms where they, you know, give me the food to eat. Like in the morning, you get a piece of celery. At lunch, you get a grain of salt for flavoring. You know, at night, you eat a sensible dinner. That was the old Slim Fast commercials. You know, a shake for breakfast, shake for lunch, then a sensible dinner. I don't know about you, but if all I've had is two shakes for breakfast and lunch, I'm going to eat half a cow for dinner, you know. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Robert, you've never been on a diet. Yes, I have. I've lost a lot of weight, but I've gained a lot since birth. And I try to maintain a little heavier frame so that women won't lust. And um, it's, it's working really well. See, they're laughing on the front row. They're going, you know, that, that thought never crossed our minds. That's just the kind of guy I am. But here's what I want you to hear me say, folks. Listen. I want to talk to you this morning about living the Christian life the way God intended it. God never intended it for simply to be the ups and downs. Yeah, there are going to be some ups and downs, but you know what? Every time you go back up, you ought to stay a little higher. It ought to look more like a staircase to becoming more like Christ than it is just the same old, you're waiting on the next revival or the next retreat. Is it possible to live the Christian life without staying at the retreat center? Yes, it is. Adults, it's possible for you to live the Christian life in front of your family, in front of your co-workers, in front of the other people that you go to church with. Let's look what Peter says. He gives us the greeting in the first couple of verses, and I love that about the New Testament epistles. Most of you teenagers don't even know what letters are anymore. <laughs> you know, Back in my day, we wrote letters to people, and you signed them at the end of the letter. Now we send emails, and they can tell before they ever open it who it's from. You know, I don't even want to read that. I'll just delete, you know. But in the New Testament epistles, they tell you right in the first verse who it's from. And so Simon Peter says the same thing he does in 1 Peter, and that is he identifies himself as Simon Peter. Interesting that he uses both names. His name was Simon, but Jesus gave him a new name. You remember that? He called him Peter. You remember what that stands for? The rock. This is a man who Jesus looked at and said, Peter, you're a rock. Now, folks, there were some times when the rock crumbled. There were some times when Peter had to admit that, you know what, I blew it right there. I wasn't always a rock. I didn't always exemplify rock-like characteristics. So he identifies himself as Simon Peter, but then he goes on and he does something he doesn't do in the first letter. 
He identifies himself as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't use the word bondservant in the first letter. And the word that he uses for bondservant is better translated slave. And that's not a real comfortable term. But it's a big term that is very different than servant. A servant can change their master. A slave cannot. You can choose to be a bondservant, or for some in the New Testament days, you were literally sold into slavery. You didn't have a choice about it. You were a bondservant, and the only law that applied to you was the law of the master. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, in the same way that that's true about those slaves, that's true about me because I have surrendered my life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is my master. I want none other. So the best way he could describe that was to say, I am a bondservant. I am a slave, in this case by choice, of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But then he goes on and says, also an apostle. Isn't that interesting? He uses a term that described the lowest of the low. But he also said, you know what? I'm an apostle. I'm one who has walked with Jesus, called as one of his disciples, and now sent on mission for him. And so he uses both terms then to describe himself. Just to remind you a little bit about Peter. He was one of those called from the seashore. He left everything to follow Christ. He was a part of not just the disciples, but one of the inner circle of the disciples. When Jesus would go a little higher on the mountain with a group, he'd take James and John and Peter. He failed Christ miserably by denying him. Remember that? He stood up and said, I'll never deny you. Jesus said, let me tell you something, Peter. Before the cock crows in the morning, you're not going to just deny me once, but three times. And he did that. He was restored by Jesus on the seashore. Remember that conversation? After denying Christ, Peter's out in a boat, sees Jesus standing on the shore, takes off his outer garment, jumps in the water, and swims to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Said, Peter, if you love me, take care of my sheep. That's exactly what he's doing right here, folks. That's the mission that Jesus had given him, was to attend to his sheep. He preached powerfully at Pentecost. Thousands were saved. He served as a leader in the early church, and now he suffers as a to a ministry he ministers to a suffering church while he himself is in prison that amazes me about peter and also about paul that when they write these letters they're writing them a lot of times from prison let me just tell you if you get a letter from me and i'm in prison the letter's going to say something like this hey get me out of prison <laughs> it's horrible in here contact my attorney i mean that's kind of the email or letter you're going to get from me but you don't read that from Peter. You don't read that from Paul. Here, he's not complaining about his circumstances. And folks, he is literally weeks away from being killed himself. And what is he doing? He's thinking about these believers that are suffering all over the world at that time. And he writes this letter to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours. Literally, just the same equal value or honor as ours. Here's the cool thing about God. The ground's level at the cross. See, Peter was a Jew. Not only was he an apostle, but he could have said, hey, I'm a Jew. I'm part of the chosen people of God. And the letter that he writes to these people, some of the people he wrote to were Jews, but some of them weren't. Some of them weren't born into the family of the Jewish nation. They were Gentiles. What does he say? Hey, you've all received the faith, the same kind as ours. Let me apply that 2,000 years later. He's talking about us too. Most of us in this room weren't born into a Jewish family, but we've kind of been grafted in. We've been adopted into the family of God. Why? Because we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
and it's a valuable faith. And that's what Peter says. You've received the faith equally valuable as ours. And how did you receive it? You didn't receive it by efforts of your own. You received it through the righteousness of God. Look at me. The only means of our justification, the only way that you're pronounced right with God is not your righteousness. It's not because you did something and brought it to God and said, God, is this good enough? No, it's because you came empty-handed to God and said, the only reason I can stand is because I've accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Through the righteousness of God. And then he says something interesting in verse 2. He says, grace and peace be multiplied. He basically uses a Roman or Greek greeting, and then he used a Jewish greeting. He used grace, which would have been common among just the Gentiles of that day, the Roman greeting, but he also says peace, which is a Jewish greeting, shalom, peace, grace and peace. What do those two words mean? Grace. It means receiving something you don't deserve. Peter is reminding them the only way you come to Christ is by faith through grace. It's it's God's grace that you even have the faith to come to him. And then peace. Grace is God's favor. Peace is the effects of that favor. When things are put right between you and God, you can experience peace. And trust me, until that happens, you'll never experience it. So Peter says grace and peace, and I don't just want you to have a little of it. I pray that it be exponentially multiplied in your life. He loved the people that much. But it would be multiplied through a true knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. So that's the greeting. Let's look on then. God's power to live godly. I love this. He says, His divine power has granted to you everything you need. So if you have everything you need to live a godly life, where did it come from? It came from God's power. It did not come from you. It came from supernatural, divine, dynamite power of God. Let me ask you a question. Put on your thinking caps here a minute. If Peter says you've been granted everything you need for life and godliness, is there anything left out of everything? Is that too tough of a question? If you've been given everything, then is there something that you didn't get? See, I think sometimes, and I think I thought this maybe as a teenager up into my 20s, I kind of thought, you know, the reason I'm struggling is because some people got something I didn't get. And the truth is, if you've come to Christ, He's granted to you everything you need for life and godliness. Well, how do you get it? You get it by running faster than others or jumping higher? No, you get it through His grace. Have you ever played spiritual comparison games? If you, I did this as a teenager. I'd kind of check out other people on the row, and I thought they were all more spiritual than me. I kind of thought, you know, God's probably going to let me into heaven, but it's going to be the back door. I didn't have a back door. If you ever looked down the row and thought, you know what, they must really... See, I thought that. I, I looked at people in my church growing up, and the ones that looked the most miserable, I thought, man, they must really know God. Because they had the, the, the look on their face. There wasn't any joy there. I don't know. They just had a condition or something, you know. The ones that squinted their eyes a little tighter, I thought, man, they, look at them. I'll never be able to do that. I was jealous of my pastor. He had the longest pointer finger I've ever seen in my life. I used to watch him during the offering. He would sit up and he'd, he always did. Great guy. But he put his finger like this and I thought, man, I need extensions on my finger. Which is really cool if you're a preacher and you've got a really long pointer finger because when you point at people, it's like 3D, man. It's just like getting out there. And my pastor really did know God, but it wasn't because his finger was longer than mine or he squinted his eyes tighter than me. 
How did he know God? Because he had placed his faith in Jesus Christ. It was all about God's grace. And students look at me, adults look at me. If you're sitting here kind of thinking, you know what? I can never live the Christian life like that person because they've just been blessed more than me. Listen, the day you came to Christ, you got everything you need for life and godliness. Now, there's something about being nourished in the faith. There's something about comparing yourself to somebody like Billy Graham who's walked with God for ages and knows God deeply. But he hadn't gotten something that you didn't get. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness. So don't kind of go through life saying, well, you know, you might as well expect it. I'm just going to be a failure at this Christian life thing because I didn't get everything everybody else got. No. Here's the good news. God has not, never had to recall one of his models. You know, car dealers sometimes have to send you a little notice in the mail. We forgot to put something on your car, and it may blow up. You ever got one of those notices? Because I have. I've gotten some of those notices before. Like, you know, we have a little, we figured out about 100,000 of these things have wrecked on the road, so you might want to bring yours in before that happens. God's never had to recall one. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness. When a child, when a healthy baby is born, that baby is born with everything he or she needs for life. Now, it still needs to be nourished. But it's not waiting for a part to come later in the mail. And you as a Christian are not waiting, you know, I've got to wait 12 weeks for this thing. I sent off for it. No, you don't have to wait for it. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness. And it comes from God, not from you. Everything. And it's life. In fact, the word that he uses here, there's two words that he could have used. One is just simply the life that gives you the life to breathe. The other one is that word zoe. It means life the way God intended it. You've been getting everything you need to live the life the way God intended it. And to be godly. To live the way God intended and the way God lives. And you do it through the true knowledge. And you'll hear this word if you read Second Peter. He uses this word knowledge a lot. Now, I won't go into this a whole lot because you'll see it in other New Testament books. But there's a group of people back then called the Gnostics. You ever heard of them? They basically were teaching this false teaching that through knowledge you could escape morality, basically, or mortality, through knowledge. And so Peter's saying they don't even have the true knowledge. They taught some weird stuff, and, and he's saying, no, through God you get the true knowledge. But then let's look at the purposes of God's promises. In verse 4, for by these, by his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Precious in the fact they're costly and valuable. Magnificent in the fact they are exceedingly great and they're his promises. There's over 5,000 promises in both the Old Testament and New Testament. You say, Robert, how do you know that? Because I've read books. I didn't count them myself. Can I just give you a few this is just 12, 12 of them, Old Testament, New Testament. You've been promised God's presence. He says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you. You've been promised God's protection. In Genesis 15, 1, he says, I am your shield. You've been promised his power in Isaiah 41, 10. I will strengthen you. You've been promised his provision in Isaiah 41, 10. I will help you. You've been promised his leading, and when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goes before them, John 10, 4. You've been promised his purpose. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, Jeremiah twenty eleven. Is that enough? 
Let me give you a few more. You've been promised His rest. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. You've been promised His cleansing if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. You've been promised His goodness. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Psalm eighty four eleven. We could go on. There's over 5,000 of them. You got time? Okay. <laughs> no. We've got lunch coming up. What's the point? See, the point is sometimes you hear all those promises and there's more on the list and there's certainly more in Scripture. Read them and find out for them yourself. God's not saying these apply to everybody but you. But sometimes we live our life almost believing that we don't deserve those promises. Well, guess what? You don't. God doesn't give them to you because you deserve them. God gives them to you because He loves you. And for those that are called according to His name, those who are believers, those who have placed their faith in Him, get it all. Over 5,000 promises. Promises of God's goodness, His protection, His provision. And so it's possible to live the Christian life without going off to a mountaintop somewhere. In fact, where God really wants you to live it is right where you live. He wants you to live it at school. He wants you to live it in front of your friends. He wants you to live it in front of your family. You know one of the things that would freak your parents out, some of you? If they saw a difference in your life that Jesus is making. Billy Graham put it this way. He said one of the hardest places, one of the hardest environments to live for God is in the home among the people that know you best. And yet, folks, some of you have parents that don't know Jesus. It may be a dad or it may be a mom or both. If you would live the Christian life in front of them, some of them will be one to Christ because of it. For one thing, they're going to be shocked. What's different? Well, Mom, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not perfect, but I'm becoming more like Him every day. You've been granted His great and precious promises, and there's a reason for that. So that you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Hang on for the next couple of minutes. I'm almost done. You become a partaker of the divine nature. Did you know that's God's plan from the very beginning? When God created Adam and Eve, how did He create them? He said He created Adam, man and woman. He created them in His image. You know what the word image means? It means character or nature. So God's plan from the very beginning is that you would walk in His nature. You'd walk in His character, in His image. That's how He created Adam and Eve. What happened? They sinned. So what happened? They got kicked out of the garden. They, got, they were punished. There's a consequence to sin. That nature got marred. They now have a sinful nature that will always lead to corruption. And yet, through faith in Christ, you're given a new nature. You're restored to that nature that God created you to have in the first place. You now walk in a divine nature that always leads to life. 